Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're UC Davis Children's Hospital trained pediatricians in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into this episode. Okay, everyone. So today we have Anari Patel, who's one of our UC Davis medical students, with us to help us go through today's case. Thanks for having me. Today we have a four-year-old previously healthy boy coming to the emergency department with five days of fever, highest 103.2 Fahrenheit, bilateral eye redness, rash, fussiness, and decreased appetite. Mom described swelling and redness of his hands and feet. His temperature is 102.5 Fahrenheit, and his heart rate is 150 beats per minute. So he is febrile and tachycardic. On exam, you also find unilateral swollen cervical lymph nodes and a strawberry red tongue. So sounds like pretty classic Kawasaki disease or KD, which you can also actually call it mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, though I've honestly never heard anyone refer to it as this. Um, it's something we've seen a lot in residency and should always be on your differential for fever for five days or even fewer. Yeah, so what is Kawasaki disease? KD is an acute necrotizing vasculitis, meaning a destructive inflammation of the blood vessels. It was first described in 1967 by a Japanese pediatrician, Dr. Tomisako Kawasaki, hence the name. Children of Japanese ancestry are classically about to be at risk for KD, but in fact, we see it in all children, especially under the age of five. So, Aniri, with vessel inflammation, what's the big consequence we want to avoid? Coronary artery aneurysms. In fact, several factors have been identified for poor coronary artery outcomes, including younger age, male sex, Asian and Pacific Islanders, Hispanic ethnicity, and some inflammatory markers. Perfect. So the exact cause of Kawasaki disease isn't actually clear, but it shares similarities with infectious processes like toxin-mediated or viral illnesses. Another theory is impaired immune regulation. But since we really don't know, I figured we could bring in one of our UC Davis infectious disease experts, Dr. Daniel Dodson, and ask him what his thoughts were. Unfortunately, despite extensive research, the trigger for Kawasaki disease remains unknown. I had mentors in fellowship who told me they wouldn't retire until the cause was determined, so we'll see how that works out for them. Given seasonality and most common age of illness being in toddlerhood, many think KD may be a rare complication of a ubiquitous and typically asymptomatic or minimally, minimally symptomatic microbe. Rarity in children less than three months being due to maternal antibody and decreased incidence with age being due to acquired immunity. Seasonality and epidemics may also suggest an infectious origin. It is also plausible more than one microbe may trigger KD, and so there may not be one single cause. We have seen a similar but not identical syndrome with MISC related to COVID-19. Previously proposed non-infectious triggers for Kawasaki disease like mercury, pollen release, and dust mites have not panned out. More advanced molecular techniques have failed to identify an infectious cause as well, but you can appreciate how hard people have looked. There is likely also genetic interplay given somewhat increased risk of KD in family members and higher prevalence of specific genetic polymorphisms in affected individuals. Toxic shock can present similarly with mass immune response triggered by a superantigen and is also known to be a dance between pathogen and host susceptibility. 
As you alluded to earlier, Kawasaki disease is a medium vessel vasculitis with upregulation of peripheral cytokines and local vessel wall and immune infiltration with plasma cells, macrophages, and eosinophils of the coronary of the arteries, with the most consequential being the coronary arteries. This can result in loss of integrity of the artery walls, dilation and aneurysms, and in the worst case, devastating consequences such as thrombosis leading to myocardial infarction or vessel rupture leading to sudden death. Thank you, Dr. Dodson, for that helpful information. Okay, Mary, so how do we diagnose Katie? The classic diagnosis is based on clinical findings. You need to have daily fever for five or more days, and four of the five findings, conjunctivitis, rash, cervical lymphadenopathy, strawberry tongue or mucositis, and hand and foot swelling. I like the mnemonic crash and burn, where C stands for conjunctivitis, which is typically bilateral and non-exudative, R for rash, A for adenopathy, S for strawberry tongue, H for hand and feet edema, or erythema, which is a late finding, and burn for the fever. Yeah, I actually remember that mnemonic for when we were studying for the medical step exams. Um, and I will say the rash can look like a lot of things, but should definitely not be petechial or vesicular. Yeah, and that's great and all, but Tammy, you and I know that real life, unfortunately, isn't usually textbook perfect like our case. Um, and pretty often kids don't fit into all the criteria, but they just will have some of them. So they might have the fever for five days, but then only like two or three of the clinical criteria. So in that case, you would consider atypical or incomplete Kawasaki, which factors in laboratory markers of inflammation, but still has the same treatment. There's an easy algorithm to follow up in the AAP article from the American Health Association or up to date, but generally you start by looking at the ESR and the CRP. If the CRP is greater than 30 or the ESR is greater than 40, then you should look at more inflammatory labs and get an echo. Yeah, and with the inflammatory labs, you need three of the six to meet criteria for incomplete Kawasaki, or you just need to have a positive echo. The labs specifically are platelets greater than or equal to 450 after the seventh day of fever, which I actually didn't know about, albumin less than three grams per deciliter, anemia for age, elevated ALT, but they don't actually give you an exact number, and then a white blood cell count greater than 15,000. Or you can also have sterile pyuria with greater than 10 white blood cells per high power field on a urinalysis. Yeah, and Anari mentioned earlier that younger infants are at higher risk for coronary artery abnormalities, especially those six months and younger, which is why if they have a fever for seven or more days, even without Kawasaki symptoms, you should do the incomplete Kawasaki lab workup. And everyone with Kawasaki, complete or incomplete, needs to have follow-up echoes with cardiology to monitor for future potential coronary artery aneurysms. So I know this episode is all about Kawasaki, but real quick, what if the labs don't meet criteria, the echo is totally normal, you don't see any aneurysms, what should we be thinking about on our differential? Well, I guess any viral or bacterial infection can cause fever. But specifically, adenovirus causes conjunctivitis and pharyngitis, which could cause cervical lymphadenopathy, maybe EBV and enterovirus too. Yeah, great thoughts. There's also Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which can cause a full body rash that starts in the extremities and moves centrally towards the trunk. Toxic shock or stuffed scalded skin syndrome may start with the peeling rash. That will look similar at first to Kawasaki, but then generally progresses and looks different later on. 
And then let's not forget MISC, which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that can occur after COVID infection and has many similar findings to Kawasaki, like the prolonged fever and the inflammatory markers that are elevated because like the name says, it's an inflammatory process. Other things to think about would be measles, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, systemic JAA, and scarlet fever. Okay, wow. That was way more comprehensive than what I was going to say. I was just going to be like URI, MISC, and uh, that was about it. <laughs> but let's actually talk about treatment for Kawasaki. So the first line treatment is high-dose intravenous immunoglobulin, also known as IVIG, and medium to high-dose aspirin. Yeah, and for those of us that need to know the dosing specifics, that would be 2 grams per kilo of IVIG, and for aspirin, 30 to 50 mg per keg for the medium dose, all the way up to as much as 80 to 100 mg per keg for high dose, with a max of 4 grams per day. In general, though, the AHA and AAP recommend medium dosage to avoid any toxicity. IVIG should be given within first seven days of illness or as soon as you strongly suspect the diagnosis and at the latest on day 10 unless fever persists or there are signs of ongoing inflammation or coronary artery abnormalities. If IVIG is given within the first 10 days, it can reduce the risk of coronary artery aneurysms from 25% to 5% according to some studies. So something I didn't realize until my first year of residency was that IVIG is a blood product. We get it by filtering human plasma. So you have to obtain consent from a patient's legal guardian before you give it. And you need to discuss the risks like infusion reactions, hemolytic anemia, especially to those who get IVIG multiple times or have non-O type blood, and aseptic meningitis, which is really just a bad headache, but it's pretty common. The guidelines recommend pre-medication with antihistamines to prevent infusion reactions and giving the IVIG slowly over 8 to 12 hours. You also need to delay live vaccines because the IVIG can interfere with immune response. So MMR and varicella should be delayed for 11 months. Yeah, that's a pretty classic textbook board question for those yep. of us studying for the boards. <laughs> Corticosteroid therapy can also be added to IVIG and aspirin treatment for those at high risk of IVIG resistance. Another treatment option, infliximab, which is a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, has been explored and is used routinely by some centers in the U.S. There was a study called Kid Care that was published in December 2021 that stated that infliximab was non-inferior to IVIG for refractory KD. So if someone fails the first IVIG, they could get infliximab. And we've actually started to slowly move towards using infliximab if someone still has a fever after the first IVIG dose. Additionally, anakinra or other medications such as calcineurin inhibitors, for example, cyclosporin, have been explored, but their effectiveness in KD is still being studied. Going back to aspirin treatment, the duration of the higher dose regimen varies, but you should always switch a patient to low-dose therapy, which is three to five mg per kg per day, and have cardiology follow-up to determine the final duration of aspirin. Some switch to low-dose aspirin when patients are afebrile for 48 hours or after two weeks. If echo is normal at six weeks, cardiology will often stop aspirin completely, but in cases of persistent coronary artery abnormalities, low-dose aspirin may be continued, and additional anticoagulation or antiplatelet agents can sometimes be added for moderate to large aneurysms. You should also recommend the flu shot to prevent the potential risk of Rye syndrome while you're on aspirin, which is that sort of big scary thing that we all know about, which is why you never give aspirin to kids unless they have Kawasaki. 
Okay, thanks, Sanari, for helping us talk about Kawasaki. To summarize, Kawasaki disease is vasculitis primarily affecting young children. The exact cause remains unknown, but it is believed to involve a complex interplay of genetic susceptibility and potentially infectious triggers. Diagnosis is based on a combination of clinical symptoms explained by the mnemonic crash and burn and lab findings. Treatment is IVIG, medium or high dose aspirin with the goal of preventing coronary artery aneurysms. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for music composition and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlis for mentorship.